Stacy and I'm Norma and we're Black Girls with Accents. Hello everyone. Welcome back to Black Girls with Accents. So I always say I'm so excited. I think that's kind of the tagline for the show at this point. But I am. We are. Yeah, truly excited today to introduce the woman of the hour, Dr. Natasha Gordon Chippenberry, who is a scholar by training. She actually published the groundbreaking book, Representation and Black Womanhood, The Legacy of Sandra Bartman. She's also a journalist and she's published for Essence Magazine, as well as the Tico Times. She is an entrepreneur who has for many years hosted a phenomenal writers and wellness retreat for women of color. Uh, She's a teacher, she's a mother, she's badass, and one of the most courageous women I know. Um, Natasha is not afraid of change. She's not afraid of taking on new responsibilities entering into uncharted territory. I really admire her and the, just the kind of changes she's made in her life, uh, the kind of building, the kind of life and community that she wants for herself uh, without compromising anything actually. And uh, we've been friends for a long, long time, uh, raised our kids together from the sandbox, literally. And um, when she left, Oh, it was difficult, but, um, you know, just watching her success and just as a model for, you know, for all women to know that you can lead, uh, you can be, you can be, um, someone who doesn't allow naysayers to shape your life and to influence or impact your values. So anyway, all the gushing aside, it is my great pleasure this morning to welcome Natasha Welcome. Wow, what an introduction. Well, so as you know, we have been talking to other Black women with accents uh, for this season three, or maybe you don't know that yet. And many of the women we've spoken to, well, I should say many, some of the women that we've spoken to have also decided to leave the US to start anew. But you, for eight years, you've been living in your maternal homeland of Costa Rica. You left New York. But you've been an international traveler, a traveler for real, a global traveler for a long time. Travel is not new to you. Whether it was going abroad for graduate school, um, going abroad, uh, receiving Fulbright fellowships, that's Correct, multiple Fulbright fellowships. If you know about academia, you know that Fulbrights are not kind of an easy thing to come by. It it really is a testament to the strength of your scholarship uh, and your badass grant writing skills, obviously. Um, And so it's one thing to dip your toe into other cultures, to sample them and and spend, you know, a couple of weeks or so and to leave. But Tasha, you know, has found herself... uh, has had opportunities to kind of root herself within communities 
And while in those communities, she's really been a change maker. It hasn't been about a kind of tourist experience. It's about, for her, from the outside looking in, it's been about um, really creating forging connections with the community, similar to our other guest, Clarissa Cummings. So can you talk to us about your 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 itch for traveling what what inspired that i know that you're the child of, of immigrants um does that have anything to do with it is it just your curiosity is it the work talk to us about what inspired your love of travel from an early age what a fantastic question to start off thank you so much um i think you hit it right on the on the top right with being a child of immigrants so my father's panamanian my mother's costa rican and from very young i remember in august because my mother is a, a teacher a professor of spanish so she had summer vacations off but she usually taught um uh, like a summer school class but then august would be the month that my dad also got vacation and so in August, he would always go someplace. So by the time I was, I mean, I, I, re- I don't remember it, well, vaguely, but I mean, I, I know the pictures. By the time I was five, I had already been to Malaga, to Torremolinos in Spain. So my parents, you know, these, these Central American immigrants, these, these Black people liked going to spaces where they could speak the language. But it wasn't, uh, I don't, I, I can't say that it was aspiration, aspirational that they go to Europe. But for some reason, I remember my parents, they rented this little apartment in Spain, in the south of Spain, and that's where we would go, you know. And then what ended, there was always built into sort of growing up the, the pilgrimage to Costa Rica. So from very, very small, we always came for like Christmas vacation. So Christmas is a big deal in Costa Rica. They start putting up trees in like October because there's no <laughs> Halloween, Thanksgiving and all right, the rest. So right. it's like Christmas, right? And then they don't take down trees until like February. Right, right. Um, I love it. So I, I would say that for my parents inspired that, you know, I mean, and my parents are, thank God, they're still, you know, in their 80s, mm-hmm. covid Barring COVID, they are travelers. They are they are what we would call in Spanish cruceros, meaning they love cruises, mm-hmm. right? And so they do that all the time. But they are travelers, you know. And um, I think that that really got it made it seem normal. Particularly, it wasn't the idea of um, needing to stay in one space. So I think that my parents also modeled a, a life of travel. And also returning home, but they made certain choices. So they're not property owners. They didn't dig deep into sort of the U.S. society of kind of acquiring the American dream. But in many cases, it was about seeing the world. And Mm. I've replicated that with my children. Right, right. Okay, wonderful. That's amazing. Okay. Okay. let me ask you about your first trip to Africa. And so uh, Tasha's been in many different places in Africa. So let me ask you about South Africa in particular. So what was that well, like? Mm-hmm. So South Africa was not the first place I went to Africa. So do you want the first first yes. story? Because it's a good yes, one. Yeah, the first first story. Okay. 
So I went to Vassar, right? So Vassar is very, very, you know, predominantly white institution in New York. And I chose Vassar as a black girl who wanted to just do English. I knew that very clearly. Vassar was close. It was far away from my family that I could still get access to, but it was so far away. And they didn't have a math requirement. Literally, that was the criteria. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I'm not going to front. I never wanted to do math after 12th grade. Right. And I have not. <laughs> and I'm like, so I was the only, well, I was one of two black English majors. Everybody mm-hmm. else sort of did Africana studies. And, you know, right. uh, for the few black students or students of, of color that were there, they sort of went to black studies. And I was like, I'm doing English. So, yeah, Sir Gowan in the night. I was doing the whole thing. Yeah. Old English. There I was, this little black girl going through the text, doing Latin and all that stuff. And so in my junior year, well, in my junior year, my best friend and I decided that we were going to do our spring semester abroad. And so she applied and got into the Sorbonne and I was going to go to Oxford. Oh. It was, you know, and then I was going to spend the summer in Paris and that's what I was going to do. And so I remember in the beginning of, of my junior year, you know, you have to go and apply. And I went into the study abroad office and I just said, okay, so they looked at my transcript and they were like, well, you need like a 2.4 to get into the Oxford program in for your English major, just for your the averages of your English courses. So even though I had that GPA it was over, but it wasn't necessarily just in my major. Yeah. And so I was like, it was, it was like a 3.4. I was like at a 3.3.1. Literally, right? And so I wept. I remember walking across campus. It was cold that day. I went to my best friend's uh, dorm room and I was literally crying. Like, they, they're not, they won't let me go to England. I want to oh. go to England. I want to go to England. And her boyfriend was there and she had a map, a world map on the wall. And he took it off the wall and put it flat on her bed. He was like, you need to stop, close your eyes, choose another place and go someplace else. Okay. And I literally closed my eyes. I spun around three times and I put my hand on the map and it landed on Kenya. Kenya. Okay. And so I walked back across, wiped my tears, walked back across to the, uh, and I was like, well, I want to go to Kenya. And they were like, oh, you only need like a 1.2 to go to Kenya. Right. So it's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's where we're going. <laughs> so I was like, let me pack up and go to Kenya. And I did. And I went to Kenya. And I remember I was the only, I think there was like two other black girls who I'm still friends with. Um, there were two other black girls there, but I was the only one at the airport at JFK with the suitcase and the backpack. Cause I was like, well, I'm trying to bring my clothes. Right. You know? <laughs> I'm not trying to be in the bus. Like, right. What's going on? I'm going to Kenya. I had no idea about any of it. And I remember we got to, as soon as we landed, they took us to like a safari to do kind of an orientation in it. Like, yeah, it was, it was a really nice like space. And they did orientation for us, and then it got really dark. And I remember they were like, well, you have to go, the bathroom's sort of outside of the rooms. And I was like, oh, I'm from Brooklyn, I don't know, you know, whatever. And so I had my flashlight, and I was like, I went outside, I was like, I have to go. So I went outside that first night, and I looked up, 
and I had never, ever, ever seen stars. Right, right. I, I had never been in a space that dark, and it was the most incredible experience of my life. And I just, I literally wept. I stood there just shaking, like, I'm in Africa. It was not like a motherland, you know, Africa. Yeah. It was like, it just felt, it felt definitely ancestral. It felt like a welcome. And that began my journey. And I've been to over 13 African countries, lived and moved. And, you know, I mean, and obviously I chose to go to South Africa for graduate school a couple of years after. Um, and that's where I did a second master's in my doctorate in South Africa, in Johannesburg and Pretoria, because I had already developed a relationship with Africa that um, started at that moment under the stars in Kenya. Wow. 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 Amazing. I, I, uh, it kind of, I love it all because that feeling of that, the stars being almost like a blanket when you stand there, it's definitely like, you know, if you're like ever any city kid that gets to experience that is like in awe because you really don't realize what that is until you get to experience it. Like, in a like, you know, like pitch black, out, out further out from any city lights and stuff like that. So I, that feeling alone, you just like made me warm inside. Um, I was listening to what you were saying, and I was uh, kind of also thinking about what I read on you about like you seeing from an uh, Afro Costa Rican, is that I'm saying right? And it made me immediately think about like, how do you merge or do you feel like you merge the two sides of you? Like I'm listening to you and like you arrive and not, like you said, not the like, oh, the motherland, but like, you feel welcome. You feel like I'm in a place where I belong. And um, like, just as a person that has basically two places or two cultures or two, like, how does that, how do you feel about that? Do they merge? Do you see them as two separate parts? I would like your... Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So I don't feel like I had a multiple cultures or merging anything I actually I feel very much like I'm black and all the nuances of that and whatever that brings in in terms of a, a pan-african universal sensibility of a person of African descent I'm very clear on that particularly because when I was five I I, I was with my mother and my sister who are very fair um and I was in Florida and experienced a really horrifying racial experience where um, I was almost thrown into traffic by these white men who, you know, called me the N-word and, you know, basically wanted wanted their sidewalk, wanted their space on the sidewalk. And I was not I had not been trained at five to actually move away from them. So um, that very clearly that moment at five really made me understand not only um, that I look different than my family, right? Yeah. As, as you know, because we're all spectrums of shades. Um, people still are like, is that your brother and sister? And I'm just yeah. like, yeah, even though same mother, same father, right? But for me, my parents and my, my grandparents are Jamaican immigrants yeah. who then came into onto the Caribbean coast of both Panama, right? And also into Costa Rica to... Um, either work on the canal zone or work for the United Fruit Company, right? And so mm -hmm. for me, my upbringing, my 
understanding of my sense of blackness is very is very Caribbean. It's that's how I identify myself as an Afro Caribbean. When people mm-hmm. are like, oh, you're an Afro Latina, I was like, why? I have no Afro. There's no Latina. No, my my people before me did not marry into uh, Latinidad, into a, a Costa Rican local or mestizo. I don't have that in my line. My line, I can take it all the way straight back to Jamaica. Yeah. You know, and so in terms of identity, it did not feel like being in Kenya. I was like, I look like yeah. everybody else. Let's go. Let's do this. I was, I was so happy. Um, I think in South Africa, it was a little tougher because mm. I was racialized as a color. Right. And so the politics of that. So I was not an African. Right. And um, and, and those labels were a little bit more difficult. But in Kenya, because I spoke Swahili, I learned it really quickly. I just, I, I just felt like I was part of the crew and it was fine. And I never felt outside of that. Can you, so as an extension of that, can you talk about language a little bit? Because you do speak fluent Spanish um, as well as Swahili. So how then does that kind of shape how you move through the world, having this knowledge of another language beyond English and Swahili? Right. Um, I would not say I'm fluent in any language except English. Oh, like okay. definitely that is the language that I speak with, with that I can articulate my dreams in. Mm. So I, let me say that. Um, and so because I teach in English and my world is English speaking world, even in Costa Rica, um, all my instructions in English, you know, as a professor. And so um, even my community, because Afro Costa Ricans, of them are Caribbean based and they speak English and Spanish, right? right. I would say that my Spanish is, is definitely, I wouldn't have a problem negotiating anything, but in a conversation, even with my family, when I'm with them, I automatically speak in English. Really? Um, and they respond to me in English or Spanish. So it's like we're going back and forth. But there's a part of me that's kind of like, all of y'all learn English first, okay. <laughs> you know, and so it's not like, I mean, we're all nodding to colonial languages. I get it. But there's also a part of me that's like, as, and I consider myself the family historian, mm-hmm. um, because I do a lot of memoir work and a lot of family history work here. Um, I always go back, particularly to the elders who all speak English um, and then speak Spanish. So I would say with language, with Swahili, because it was part of the junior, it was my exchange programs re- uh, requirement. Right. I learned conversational Swahili. I haven't practiced it in 30 years. I can't say that I have, I, I know Swahili, but at that time, yes, it was very helpful because what it allowed me to do is people couldn't place me. It wasn't like, oh, you're that loud American, but I could actually go to the market and speak to people and, and just be a person and connect. And, you know, sometimes it would be fun where people would kind of guess where I'm from. They'd say, oh, are you from the coast? Are you from Tanzania? You know, um, and that was really nice when you, you know, you engage with local people. Um, at one point, you know, obviously for the doctorate, you have to have a second language. So my formal second language training is in French, actually. And so at one point in time, I was very fluent. And even the French people did not want to kick me out in Paris <laughs> because I could manage the language. But to be honest, um, all that proficiency is gone. If you are not immersed in it, it's yeah. very difficult. I mean, I can read it, yeah. but and, you know, I could probably attempt to write it. But no, unless you're using that muscle, um, it, it's quite difficult. Right. So I would say that in different situations in my life, I've been able to utilize it. But 
it's not easy, as easy as for like my children who learn language because they have young brains. Yeah. Uh, my children are completely bilingual. They're com- I mean, there's no, there's no question that, you know, um, in being here in Costa Rica for eight years, nobody would be able to identify them as non-Costa Ricans if you were listening to their conversation, wow. which is, I think, incredible. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Let me ask, so I'd like to you to share with our listeners a little bit about your experience in Malawi, uh, especially as, as it relates to the kind of work that you're interested in doing as an academic. Not just as an academic, just as a as a person who's invested in culture and community. Hmm, that's a great question. So Malawi, um, which is a country that is landlocked between Zimbabwe and Mozambique and is south of Tanzania, um, is where is the maternal and paternal homeland of my husband. And so I had no idea where Malawi was on the map when I met him 25 years ago. Um, and it was, you know, through meeting him when we were in Johannesburg that, you know, he sort of introduced me to the country, which is really interesting because in many ways, his, my introduction was his introduction. He was born in LA in exile, and so had come back to Malawi because the dictator had finally um, been removed. And his mother became a deputy minister of education and health in Malawi after 26 years in exile in Los Angeles. And so he didn't even know for the first 25 years of his life that his mother spoke another language. He only thought she spoke English. So she gets to Malawi and there she is with her driver and her bodyguards and this big house. And he's like, whoa. So he went and spent a year with her, trying to acclimate, trying to get the language and just trying, getting out of the United States. That was like right after Rodney King. So you can imagine sort of the racial tensions that happened there. So when we met in Johannesburg, you know, we went to Malawi to visit his mom all the time. And what ended up happening was I got a second Fulbright to, um, to teach at Chancellor College in Malawi for six weeks. And that was in the summer of 2010. And it worked perfectly because my husband's band was performing at um, the World Cup, which was in mm-hmm. South Africa that mm-hmm. year in 2010. So he was already in South Africa. And so I took the kids. And I can't believe I'm brave taking these kids all the way from New York, 17 hours to <laughs> right. Johannesburg. And then, you know, I always amazed. And I'm like, somebody slept on the floor. Somebody <laughs> did something. But they were good. Um, they were excited. And so I took them. And it was really interesting. Uh, my daughter was five. My son was nine. And we had faculty housing. Um, but there was there was only water at certain times of the day and there was only electricity at certain times of the day. Right. So I could sort of get on email that, um, in the office on campus and I was teaching a, a course that was like literary, a literary theory course of like African-American history and literary theory. And that's what I was teaching to. They were graduate students mm-hmm. and I was teaching that course for six weeks. Um, and so I would go off every day to do that in the office. And then my kids stayed with my mother-in-law and they ended up having all these friends. It was wonderful, but we knew that like by five o'clock, the electricity would be off. You had to cook before you had to put on the, you know, the candles. It was the best experience ever. I'm so glad because what ended up happening was I created a relationship with the libraries at the university 
and I was able to send books to them and really just support what they were trying to do in Malawi um, and also really just support the work that my mother-in-law was doing. She's had uh, an NGO since 1998 called Win Malawi that supports women and children, orphans particularly. Excellent. Can you also talk about the uh, the personal project, passion project uh, between you and your mother-in-law? Oh, yeah, I mean, gosh, we have a couple, we have a couple of passion projects, but I would say, um, you know, one of the things that I started with her was writing her, assisting with her memoir writing. Um, and that is, right now it's on a hiatus because um, there were some, there were some details that, um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, they didn't match up with the actual with with actually what happened in real time that's documented. And so, as an academic, as someone with this particular name, which has a lot of weight in Malawi, Chipembere is the biggest highway in the country. is called Chipembere Highway, which is named after my late father in law, who is going to be the president of Malawi. So mm-hmm. it's like this is family royalty, right? right. These are these are huge, yes. beautiful people. And so um, the the project's a bit on hold because iron out some of the, the the details and what she wants to share about her life, right? But the point is that if I, my name is also on the project as an academic, I also have to be able to defend certain things um, and line it up. Okay. So, but that's definitely a passion project uh, and then supporting her, her organization. Right. I bring it up. You because, said, uh, no, I'm sorry. I bring it up because Norma's uh, working on a, on a project about her grandmother. Um, paternal grandmother i believe yes so, that's correct uh, it's one of the re- there's some synergy there in terms of uh kind of oral histories the kind of work that you that you both do yes, yes. the second book is on my uh, my maternal grand great grandmother oh that's amazing yeah no it's it was the perfect uh segue tracy because that's exactly where i was uh kind of gonna go with it I, you said about uh your mother-in-law like you, your husband not even knowing that she spoke another language and that really like stood out to me. So I, I had a question about that. Is uh, I wanted to know, did she deliberately not speak the language when she was in the U.S.? And That's a good question. So when they got to the U.S., her husband was finishing his, because they, they fled. So he came to the States first and then um, the president of Tanzania helped him get out and then helped her get out with five children. Um, wow. and, and the children all had to be sent separately. So she could not leave. So they all got on different planes with different people because the dictator wanted to obviously um, destroy the family and definitely their relatives left behind were imprisoned and it was really hard so i think so when they got to the states five years in he died of dying. and so he left this widow in exile five years and they were they the dream was to go back it was never to stay for 30 years and raise their family in los angeles right right yes. um and so he died five years in and she ended up, you know, with seven children and going to going to school to get a, a an education degree. And then what she did was, which is really phenomenal, she started the first twenty four hour daycare in California. So it was it was and mostly serving nurses and doctors oh, wow. who needed overnight care. But she, I think, it was like for Huntington Hospital, which was pretty close to where they were in Pasadena. She started it because she had seven children at home. 
And so she yes. to be able she who there was no care for that, you know, at that time. Right. And so I think that her children probably spoke the language. Speaking the language by being a widow, seven years, all this going on, and not having her husband there. Right. Yeah. Whose political aspirations it was to like, you know, have this entire this this entire political moment of trying to be president and all this stuff. Um, I think it caused too much grief. I think the language mm. was was too difficult, and that's why she did not continue. That she didn't speak it in Malawi, and also there was really no one to speak it with. Right, right. That's wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, so let's 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 turn the chapter a little bit then, and and talk about the move. What instigated the move to Costa Rica? Again. I remember when Tasha told me they were moving probably around 2012. You might have started to, you know, for me at least, I knew it was serious. Like, okay, no, she's really leaving. This is not just, we're thinking about, or I'm thinking about this. No, I think she's really going. So can you talk about that process? Um, for you, there was a determination. You had a number of reasons why you were going. Can you talk about some of the resistance you faced and can you talk about just your resolve to do it because you knew it was the right thing for your family? Great, great question. Yeah, that that's that was a loaded time. And you're right, probably probably 2013, right? That's where I started to think about it. Um, and it was because I, I had started to do some research around the Black Madonna in Costa Rica. So I've been really, I was really, really interested in this idea of, there was no slavery. There was not a black presence in Costa Rica. And it's a conversation that I had with my mother often. And she was like, there was no slavery in Costa Rica. Like right. what? You know, and she's, a, she's an educator. And I was like, dude, slavery, there was 200 years of slavery in Costa Rica. <laughs> right. I mean, the archives lift the families with all their enslaved people. And so it was something that just was not part of the national narrative. It wasn't part of the education. It wasn't, it, you know, it was very much like, we had this for a moment and then everybody like melted into the bloodstream and we are all one people. Right. And so, um, so I started doing some research with that. I think I had gotten a grant to go out to the British library because of course the British library has all the archives of every single country in the world. And so (laughs) why not start at the source? And so I found some really interesting documentation there. And I was just, I was like, well, how do really, how does it line up? How does it line up this country of that basically is considered the Switzerland of Latin America, you know, this country without an army, very peaceful nation, totally eco-friendly, um, with a population of what we'd call mestizo, are Latino, but sort of have European aspirations, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they and the many of them are white presenting. Um, but I always tell them, you, you're white presenting in Costa Rica, but the minute you get to TSA, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's going to be a different story. <laughs> so you can enjoy your presenting privileges here, <laughs> but don't try to rock that in Miami. And so, <laughs> and so yeah, it's a wake-up call for a lot of people. But yeah. so I was like, okay, well, how do they reconcile that with venerating, like literally like 95 of the percent of the population venerates this black Madonna, which is the national basilica here in Costa Rica. Like, how do they mix that up? You know, yeah. and that has always been a really interesting question in terms of identity and thinking about the Afro-descended legacy in Costa Rica. And also just the black people in my family who, mm-hmm. you know, the last name is Bourjong, and they've always said, 
you know, the it goes to a French, like the, there's like, the, and I was like, what French? Maybe Haiti, but like, what French? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let's do some. Let's, let's do some uh let's do some family digging yeah. here you know um so in terms of moving i don't think uh, there are a couple things i would say one uh we're, we were in brooklyn we very much had a community that we were part of we were raising our children together you know um i was tenured and you know my husband had a great job and so we were sort of we had these tenuous i like to call them tenuous middle class you know, accoutrements, right? Ten mm-hmm. years because we're black. And so, you know, that stuff could just mm-hmm. be pulled out from you uh, in a second, no matter where you are on the planet. At least that's the way that I, I see it. And I have witnessed it myself. And so as I, I got a small grant to go in January of 2013, January 2013. Yes. January, 2013 for the first time to come and do some work in the national archives here in Costa Rica. And so I had um, never been to Costa Rica on my own. I'd always come with family members. It was Christmas, it was a holiday. Everybody had off. We were going to go to the beach. We're going to do this. But I came to Costa Rica and everybody was like, okay, well, you could stay with this cousin, but no one's driving you around. Get on the bus. That's the bus stop. Here are your colones. Here's the key for your house. And I was like, what? How am I going to do this? And then I thought, wait a minute. I've lived in Kenya. I've lived in South Africa. Right. I've been to I've been to all these places. How is it possible that I can't navigate the space? But I had always been in like a cocoon, a family cocoon, you know. Right. And um, and you know when when you're visiting relatives, they want to take you to the nicest places that right. no one's getting on the bus. I was like, I'm going to get on the bus. Wow. And so I got on the bus, and then <laughs> I got to the National Archives, and nothing happened to me. And the librarians were wonderful, and I used my struggle Spanish, and I was getting through, and I had all these articles. And I was like, and then I went to a coffee shop, I remember, right outside the National Archives, and I was like, wow, here I am in this beautiful place, just watching, there was these cobblestones, and there's art, and people just walking around, and I was having the best coffee in the world, and... I was like, I could, I could, I could do this. I could be here. Right. And I remember coming home and telling my husband and just being so excited. Like, wow, this is, I love Costa Rica because this is the first time I've actually been on my own as an adult, you know? And this was right at the end of the Obama era. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, we had a conversation and we were actually we had just gotten approved for a mortgage for the house that we were in. Cause that's what we had done. We had applied for this mortgage. Our landlord was basically like, your lease is up in June. So you're either going to have to move out or you're going to have to buy the house. And we had always said we wanted to be the first. So we were like, we'll, we'll just buy the house. And so we had gotten approved for this mortgage. And so I remember sitting on my bed in my bedroom and my husband, you want a 30-year commitment to this house or do you want to move to Costa Rica? I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it was his idea, right? Because I was just thinking, okay, back and forth, back and forth. And I was like, oh, but once that seed was like, it was like, okay, (laughs) we're going to do this. Right. And um, my first priority, you know, I told my kid, we told our kids and that we were going to try to do it, but we can do it for a year. And if they did not, if they were not thriving, they were the temperature. And if they were not thriving after a year, we would then return. 
right? Mm. My son was like, yay. My daughter was weeping because she was like in her, you know, third or fourth grade world, third grade world. And it was just like, how are you American girl? You're going to drop, you're going to pull me out of this. And so I was like, okay. Um, and I, and I told my family and I think that, you know, Tracy, your question about resistance, definitely. It was kind of like, you're taking my grandson. Yes. <laughs> why would you go back <laughs> there? We left to America. Why would you go back there? Right. Um, and I just thought, you have no idea. It would be so beautiful for me to make this circle because I have four generations of family members living here in custody, over 65 family members, and they wow. continually reproduce all the time. And there's more and more cousins and more cousins and more cousins. And so I was like, no, we're going to try this out. But to be honest, it was like, you know, I mean, because I knew, I understood that that move also was going to be the move i'm not moving again mm -hmm. this is this is my spot right mm -hmm. i mean i definitely want to travel in the world once my kids go off to college and but definitely this is where we're building foundation um and what how i determined it was i found a school for my children and then we decided once they were settled and they were enrolled in this international school where they could continue uh, with their education without it being interrupted because it was in English. Um, it was a private, it's a private international school um, that we would, you know, we would live someplace near the school. So if we didn't have a car right away, we would just, we would be able to walk them to school. And, and that's exactly what we did. We let the children lead and they ended up loving the school. And uh, yeah, I think that they've both created friends that will last them their entire life. Did you um, sending your kids to that international school and compared to like a local school, did it do anything with local friendships at all or did it work all around because those kids that go into that school also ended up staying local or did, are most friends like leaving as they get older? Are they going back to? Um, no, the international school is still mostly just wealthy Costa Ricans, and they lived in the neighborhood. So what was really nice is that a lot of these kids were the first kids that my kids met when they, you know, we bought bikes for them right away, and they started biking, and then they got, we had a dog, and then it was kind of like the kids in the neighborhood, before they knew that they were all going to that school, they would just hang out. I mean, I remember saying that the first felt like being in the 1950s suburbs in the middle of America, mm -hmm. where literally roundabouts and kids climbing trees and there was a tree house. It was astounding for me. And and the, my kids were absorbed without any issues, without any racialized issues, without any gendered issues. They were just absorbed. You're a kid, you're new, we're taking you in. And literally, there would be a bunch of kids in my house, bikes at the front, everybody's getting water, everybody would go out, they'd have their bikes, their dogs. And literally... I didn't have to call anybody inside when when the street light came on. Yeah. Right. I mean, I didn't because guess what? They were out there catching fireflies because it was dark, but it was safe. Yeah. And it was a novelty. Yes. It wasn't like, okay, where do I have to stand outside in the porch? I never went out there. It was like if it rained, come inside. Literally that was interesting that you say safe. Um Clarissa, who you know, uh, who travels a lot, she uh, she's uh, in New Mexico. I think that's where she is right now. And she said the same thing about feeling safe as an adult woman, though. Uh, the safety that she feels, not just in terms of crime either, 
just as a black woman, the safety that she feels in that particular space. Interesting uh, to, to hear that word again. Talk to me about your projects. Um, so the Black Madonna project, that was uh, indeed a labor of love. It's now finished. Uh, I'll let you speak more about that. And I'm very curious about uh, your grandmother, something that um, I always, it always piqued my curiosity when I learned about the Costa Ricans, excuse me, the Jamaicans, as someone of Jamaican heritage, who worked on the Panama Canal and occupied, I think it's the east side, could be the west side, don't remember, of the island. But they were kind of um, in a state of limbo because they didn't have citizenship. Anyway, you can talk more about that. So anyway, talk to me, talk to us about your both projects, the one that's finished on the Black Madonna and then the new one. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited. 2022, I'm hoping will be the year, right? Um, so you're right. Finding La Negrita, which is the name of the book, is a historical fiction rendition of the Black, this whole Black Madonna story in Costa Rica. And it's set in 1634 in the colonial capital of Cartago, which is, well, the former colonial part, uh, capital of Cartago here in Costa Rica. And so one of the things I was thinking about is that Costa Rica's engagement with slavery, because they did not have a, a cash crop um, plantation system, mm -hmm. the, the way that they enslaved people or the way that enslaved people were part of the society was very specific and very particular to Costa Rica. And I have not seen it actually mimic in any other, any other society that had slavery, right? Um, and so... Um, you had enslaved people on cacao on for chocolate plantations. They were even, but they were farms. They weren't like these massive plantations when you think about sort of Brazil or when we think about Dominican Republic or even the southern parts of the United States. And then mm -hmm. you had cattle ranching in the northwest, right? So you have a, a lot of black cattle ranchers. Mm. Um, and then the domestic space, mm -hmm. which in the colonial capital, which is very much a sort of a gendered a woman's space where women, black women, were in these homes. However, because Costa Rica did not have a generating uh, economy, you know, to fight like what was happening in Latin America in terms of, of enslavement and the money that was the Spaniards were gathering at that moment, they couldn't compete with other markets. They were basically like this backwater country, you know, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so there, what ended up happening was there, there ended up being a very large population of free blacks, right? right? And so... <laughs> Also, Costa Rica did not have a slave port. Anybody who was oh. enslaved, who was being sold at auction, was coming from Puerto Bello, which was on the east coast of the Caribbean coast of Panama, and then walking through the country and being brought up into the country. So it was in very small numbers. Most of them were smuggled. So you're talking of five, ten, you know, but there were definitely no direct, like, ships right. that were bringing in Africans. Um, and so what happens is you have very quickly in Costa Rica, people of African descent who are American, meaning they have had other slave experiences in other parts of Latin America up in Costa Rica. So they were already born in the Americas. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily Africans that were coming directly from, from Africa through the trade. And so this large population of in, um, freed people of African descent were called pardos. Pardos basically means free black. And there was a community of them that lived right on the periphery, like a ghetto, 
right? Called Puebla de los Pardos, literally town of the Pardos. But before it was called La Gotera. And La Gotera means the leak or the drop, right? And so basically it was a ghetto and people, you know, back and forth and imagine apartheid South Africa, right? Where there were, you know, these townships and then you had sort of white South Africa and you had the movement of black labor, right? Um, but then everybody had to stay in their place. If they, if you were enslaved, then you lived it, you know, with your family or the family that, that owned you in the colonial capital. Right. If you were a person um, who was freed, then you had to live in this township, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what my book is about. My book is about the, the people, the free Black people who lived in that township and how they developed this relationship with the Black Madonna. And so it took seven years of of research, I mean, both from the British Library, from National Archives here, archives in Guatemala, from the church um, in Guatemala, I mean, from many different spaces, English and Spanish, you know, translations of text, different scholars who are writing about it. I mean, they're, they're only a handful. And um, I decided the best way to write about the story or envision it from an Africanist perspective was to create historical fiction. Because that's where you could sort of elaborate on these characters um, who were, you know, kind of statistics in archival records. But I wanted to understand their stories. And I wanted to also have my central character as this really beautiful African man. And Dakara is that man. And he was the first character to show up for me. And he was just someone that I, I continue to be inspired by. He's someone that I, I really love, this beautiful black man. And he is that complex, but he is that from beginning to end. Um, and so Jaded Ibis Press, which is a small pre- uh, feminist press in Southern California, um, acquired the book last year. And I have... And I have a publication date of September 13th. So I am going to plan a, a launch party. I will be coming to Yay. New York and having a party. Wonderful. <laughs> Yay! Barring COVID and Omicron and Deltacron and all the rest of the rest of the variants. Rebuke. Um, right. And I will also obviously have a, a, a Zoom version. I'd like my parents to be there. You yeah. know, I mean, here I am. And I, you know, this is my first historical fiction novel. And took me a really long time to write. And I'm so grateful for this story. I'm so grateful for the book. I'm so grateful for also the audience. It's incredible. In, I mean, the interest has been phenomenal um, about this book. And people are like, when? I was like, I know, I know. And I had a hard time. I had a hard time, you know, getting someone to be interested. I had a hard time for anyone to be engaged. They were like, Black people in Costa Rica? Slavery? Like, nobody was like, what are you talking about? Where are we talking about sloths on the beach and coconut water? (laughs) You know, it was kind of like, you know, and so I was like, yeah, (laughs) black people in Costa Rica who were free, who were who were carving out a life, you know, lives for themselves alongside people who were enslaved. Right. Right. And and the Spaniards who had to navigate, you know, navigated those lives and, and those lives of freedom were very, very fragile. Wonderful. It's such a unique take from what we always get like kind of thrown down our throats, right? Like I'm just listening to the end. So not diminishing like slavery in Costa Rica in any way, but when you were doing research, did you notice a big difference with the cruelty in slavery in all the other places in the world compared to what you found in research with slavery in Costa Rica? 
That's a great question. So there's not a lot of documentation about the treatment, particularly because um, there wasn't a formalized plantation system, right? But Costa Rica is a has very dense terrain. So that's one of the things. Just the terrain itself becomes an antagonist, right? It's just like there's snakes Same and jaguars. Exactly. And so, and it's very mountainous as well. And mm-hmm. so, a lot of the black labor and indigenous labor was used to obviously carve out these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think probably the way that it's most pronounced is obviously the ways that black women's bodies get used, particularly in the relationship with the people who employ them in their home, whether that meant the master, his sons, or brothers, right. or whatever. The the, the intimate access. Um, and the violence that happened, I think, is probably the thing that is most pronounced um, when we're thinking about the slavery moment, right? right. And its legacy. Right. And I think that's universal. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that all three of us embarked on projects that took us back in some way relate to our ancestry. And that, I, I don't yes. know if that's what happens to writers, creative scholars, that they at some point in life, either whether it's conscious or unconscious, that need to produce work that is intimately connected to their, their heritage in some way. Um, that that's true of all, all three of us on the on the um on the Zoom right now. So I am very excited about the next project. I was excited about the first project, but I'm very excited yes. about this project because it's something that's stayed with me I think for the last, well, yeah, for, for eight years. Uh, I tell anyone and everyone, anytime Costa Rica's mentioned, you know, there's yes. a whole, my friend, um, <laughs> anyone that's willing to listen. Um, so can you talk to me about that? And yeah, we'll talk off mic, Mike, about plans for that. But yeah, talk yeah. to me. <laughs> so that's one of the things that my publicity team and my editor, they were just like, you have to be prepared to talk about book two. You know, book two, book one is already out in the world. And so that's what, you know, you need to be able to, to think about. And so, interestingly, I applied for a, another a research grant <laughs> to go back to the British Library right. for July because they happen to have, like, the world's largest collection of artifacts from the United Food Company. Harvard has the second, and I'm hoping to get there in December because it's an Afro-Latino conference that I'm trying to get into, but it would also give me access to the archives. But literally... What I want to do is very loosely, I'm going to do historical fiction again because there's not much, there's not much tangible material and artifacts from my great grandmother, Ruth Brazong. Um, But I want to very loosely create a story that is around her life and her children and the, the life that she created, which was incredible in Puerto Limon, which is the province on the Caribbean coast, which is very Caribbean, um, in the 1930s, 1940s. So that's really, I'm going to stop it at at 1940s because that is when there is um, a a submarine, a German submarine bombing that happens in the port. And that's how the Costa Ricans get involved with World War II. And it's really interesting that that interchange, that moment of when the bombing happens because it it directly affects my family. And my mother remembers it. You know, I think she was like four, but she remembers that night of the bombing of the submarine um, in the port. But 
I want to write about my my great grandmother Ruth because she was a Jamaican woman came um, with her husband who had been hired by the northern um, the Northern Railroad Company under Minor Cooper Key is essentially the originator of the United Fruit Company, but he was hired to build the railroad, a railroad from the colonial, the capital of San Jose, all the way to the port, because that was facing the Atlantic world. And Costa Rica wanted to export coffee. But what they had been historically doing, they had been going on their, they had been going on their, um, their, their West Coast, Punta Arenas and going down through South America, all the way around South America, and then coming up to the Atlantic Ocean to get to their main purchasers and consumers, which was the United States and Europe. By that time, the coffee was spoiling. <laughs> so they wanted, a, they needed some way to get the coffee from the highlands because the climate, obviously, in the Caribbean coast was not conducive to coffee, right? It needed to be in a, in a higher temperature, cooler temperature. And so eventually they, they created this whole contract to build this railroad. So my great-grandfather, William, married Ruth in Jamaica and came to the port of Limon. And he ran, until his death, the northern quarters. Now what, so he did not work in building railroads. They were the only, it's so interesting, they were the only people who were the proprietors of this segregated hotel that was used for all of the officials. So all of the white Americans who came from the docks and needed to stay mm-hmm. in like a hotel, and all the people who were coming from, let's say, the capital and needed to stay overnight, they provided, it was a hotel, and they provided this space, um, and they were hired essentially to do that. But then my great-grandfather, William, died. And so for 20 years, Ruth, as a widow and mother of eight children, runs the space by herself and she becomes she's so and she ends up having all this money and she like she she was famous for like stuffing money under the bed i mean she had all currency (laughs) i mean so she's this black woman like the deacon in her church you know the baptist church Mm -hmm. but becomes this like figure at large really everybody i mean her stories my mother who lived with her for a little bit when she was little said when they would walk down the street Men, black or white, would stop when they saw her and tip their hat, come and so that she could pass. You wow. know, but there was this this almost royalty around right. her, and so it's really interesting because when they say, "Well, the Jamaicans and the Barbadians and, and these Afro Caribbeans came over to work on the railroad," and then when it was finished, they worked in the banana plantation for the United Fruit Company. In actuality, my family has never had involvement with any kind of banana or railroad work. They ran that hotel. And there's still photographs of that hotel. So I have been like, I mean, it's destroyed now, but I've gone back to the site many times. And, you know, I mean, so it's really, the community very much wants me to write the story. Wonderful. Um, And so that's what I'm really excited about. Me too. Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. Norma, I'll give you the last word. Oh, so oh my goodness. Okay, because I I felt like I was gonna make it super long. Like I was ready to because I was like, did you say they got married in Japan? No, Jamaica. Oh, Jamaica, I'm sorry. Okay, because then my mind even went, I was like, what are we doing over there? Okay, I'm back. Okay, because I was like, I think they were supposed to be from Jamaica. Okay, that's amazing. Um I really love like and that I've realized it's a thing in your family. There's women with like 
multiple children and still being very entrepreneurish. I, it, yeah, I, I love that, uh, that you've been able to point those to uh, different times, but still that particular strength from women really uh, came through for me while you were talking. Well, you, um, no, go ahead. I was going to say that, that Tasha's kind of in her own way replicated that with the retreat that she hosts. That... Oh, wait, touch on that. Don't, don't, please talk about the retreat. Uh, oh, yes. It's called Tango Shed. And Tango Shed means I am thirsty, but not like I'm thirsty, but like I'm thirsty. I want nourishment, right? Um, and so it's not a contemporary sort of urban interpretation of thirsty. Um, but what happened was this. I got to Costa Rica and realized, okay, one of the things that I really wanted to do was be intentional about having a writerly life. Like I'm the, I've known since I was five years old that I wanted to write books. I've known. And I have done academia. I've done editing. I like, I, I've done all this stuff. And I was like, I've never written a book. I mean, academic. Okay. You know, you publish articles, you go to conferences, you do all this stuff. But this is my first time. And I've never taken a formal class in writing. I teach writing, right? But I've never actually taken a formal creative writing class. I've never done any of that this is literally me just using parsing together the different skills that i had to come up with this 200 page book right yes. because i love history and you know i, I love i love literature you know and i'm so interested in the, the lives of black people during during slavery slavery and so once i got to costa rica and i started writing i was like wow this place is so beautiful my office looked out at this beautiful mango tree and the days were so nice. And I just thought, I would love to bring writers here to have this experience with me where I could share my work, workshop it and get feedback, but also that And so it was, it was totally selfish how I started Tingle Set, right? <laughs> and so the first three times, I've done it six times already. So the first three times I rented a, a private house um, on the Caribbean coast and there was no Wi-Fi. It was nothing, right? I hired a cook. I took care of everything. I hired the driver to get everybody from the airport. I bought all the food. I did all of that. You know, I had someone to cook, to cook and clean, but, and I ran all the workshops. Um, and then I also had a writer in residence for the last two times. And then I was like, hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, I would like to come someplace to go someplace that could take care of all that for me. So I could actually focus on two things. I could focus on really resting mm -hmm. and writing mm -hmm. and then also um, running the workshops, right? To, to give that kind of feedback, to really focus on that. Because if you're thinking about logistics and like cooking and not having enough, whatever, your brain is just... Right. I mean, it's, it's difficult. Absolutely. And so the last three times I have gone to this very exclusive wellness retreat up in the mountains, overlooking the Pacific ocean. It, uh. One of the, it has an incredible spa. I mean, it has, it is divine and they call it a slice of heaven. I promise you it is a slice of heaven. It is completely organic. All the foods are vegan, like literally farm to table. They have all the food that we eat is literally plucked every morning before we eat it. Um, there's a chef that, you know, just caters to 
our dietary needs, but it also allowed me to really focus on workshopping and, and you know, just give, having that kind of conversation where people are getting what they need. And then also um, the space was worked. I mean, people wrote and so many, so many projects have come out of, of these retreats, you know, mm-hmm. and actually right now, Dr. India Lorik and I, who is, she's a veteran, she's been to, I think, five of the six um, Tango says, she and I are putting together an anthology of writing that and photography and poetry that, that has been produced Excellent. in the last six, um, six sessions you know, and um, yeah, I mean, we're in the process of, uh, we're in review right now by a couple of presses. Wonderful. Wonderful. Please let me know where to sign up. <laughs> well, I'm going on hiatus next year because of the book and I want to have some time. Um, but then I'm hoping to re- resume January 2024 because I have to say, even though we had a fantastic retreat this year, it was very difficult planning it during COVID. Yeah, challenging. No, we we look ahead to twenty four. Even for this year, things will brighter days ahead. We'll put that in the yes. universe. Brighter days ahead. Well, Tasha, it's been a dream country. I knew eventually we would get to you, but we had another person on here who relocated to Costa Rica, and I was like, oh no, yeah, <laughs> there is absolutely no way that we can put out this podcast with Tasha, who listens. No way, no way, no way, no way. So I'm so glad that we could get you in. I mean, different perspectives, totally different story. Um, but I mean, obviously, I wanted you on here, but this this made perfect sense. And I'm so glad that you could carve out time today uh, to talk with us. And I, I know that our listeners are going to be so inspired uh, by, by your story. And we thank you. Natasha, tell us where we can find you on social media and website. Just Natasha Gordon Chippenberry, mm-hmm. uh, dot com. Um, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well under Natasha Gordon Chippenberry, my whole name. Your whole name. I don't have any fancy handles. <laughs> yes. No underscores, no, just all together. Yes. It's so much for coming on. It's like, oh, oh my goodness, this was such a pleasure. So thank you for that. And same for us. You can find us on Instagram. It's Black Girls with Accents. Thank you for being here, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.